Well, it is great to be with you, and I'm excited to the honor of just opening God's Word. But first, I needed to tell you a little bit about Pastor Mike, some things you may not know. He's always been a leader. He's always been a man of uh, quick wit and sense of humor. Early in his life, he was a produce selector at Albertson's, uh, you know, the store, and uh, basically worked there, working with the vegetables, etc. And one day, there was a lady that came in. She was kind of a little bit older, a little bit grumpy, a little bit crabby. Uh, a little bit obnoxious, and basically said, I want a half a head of lettuce. And Mike said, no, I'm sorry, we don't do that here. She kept badgering him and badgering him, and finally he goes, I'll have to go talk to the manager. So he went and talked to the manager. He goes, this is rude, offensive, crabby, old woman who's asking for a half a head of lettuce. And the manager said, she's right behind you, Mike. <laughs> and without even missing a beat, Mike said, and this lady wants the other half. Oh, there you go. It's great. Well, the manager was totally impressed. He said, Mike, you know, we've been thinking about making you a manager, an assistant manager to start, and we'd like to send you off to Minnesota to get some training, come back after a week, and we'll be ready to go. And Mike said, Minnesota? I don't want to go to Minnesota. The only thing in Minnesota are unattractive women and hockey players. And the manager said, my, my wife uh, is from Minnesota, Mike. And Mike said, which team did she play on? That's Mike. Actually, none of that is true. Absolutely not one word. What is true is that at Faith Bible Church, we actually love Compass Bible. Uh, we actually love Pastor Mike and Carlin. They're friends of mine. They're the in most incredible marriage conference speakers ever. Uh, we're dear friends, and we uh, share a lot of ministry. In fact, you've sent us about 20 to 25 Compass people who are now a part of our church. And so far, literally, you are batting 1,000. They are wonderful people. So keep the wonderful ones coming, and the rest of you just stay here. Okay, so that's great. <laughs> understand, though, uh, we live in a funky world. Do we not? It is a crazy world. We're looking at stuff every day. You're like, what is going on? And so when you say to somebody, you mean all the world to me, that's really not a compliment anymore, you know? <laughs> Interesting enough, a friend of mine received a greeting card that said, I wish for you all the world can give. And he looked at it and went, well, thanks. Death, disease, dying, tornadoes, wildfires, you know? I that is really not. But we live on a world that we know has a lot of pull. Not just gravitational pull, but a lot of pull in our lives. Now, it is said that if you could lift 200 pounds on planet Earth, you could live 1,200 pounds on the moon. But if you lived on a planet the size of the sun, you could actually never wave. You could never lift your arm to wave. And if you laid down, you'd never be able to get up again. And what's true physically is also true spiritually. Our ability to move for Jesus Christ and to accomplish His purposes and live for Him on this world depends on our attraction to this world. And we need to understand how we live in this world, and the weight of our efforts to live for Christ is going to be sincerely either hindered or helped by how we are attracted to or unattracted to this world that we live in. Any person caught up with this world is definitely not ready for the next. And so I'll ask you this question right up front. It's a really hard question to ask a Christian, and that would be this. Are you worldly? Now, immediately, what happens when I ask a Christian that is they say, no, not me. I, I don't swear anymore, Chris, and, and I don't have 50 piercings on my face, and I don't have pink hair and green hair stripes going down my, you know, I, I'm not a worldly person, and I don't own a Tesla. I don't have a Harley. I'm just sorry. That's, that's just me being envious of Tesla drivers. Okay, so understand, interesting enough, that is not what determines worldliness. We're so geared to look at things externally 
when the Bible actually looks at things internally, and you're going to see that in this passage. So we want to rewrite our understanding of worldliness, not by what we think, but what God says. Amen to that? We want to hear what God has to say and let Him determine what it means to be worldly or not worldly. And so it's a familiar passage, but we're going to try to look at it in a different and very unique way and draw out the truth that is in there and hopefully be able to measure your life up against it. So please open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to the book of 1 John. 1 John, it's in your New Testament between Genesis and Revelation. You'll find it there. Uh, And we're going to look at the meaning of worldliness, and then we're going to look at the message. So the meaning is going to be the exegesis of it, and then the message will be drawing out the theological principles that are found there that will really be practical in our lives. And I want you to do this, if you can. I know this is different for Compass. I want you to read the passage with me. So I put it in your outline so we can read it out loud together out of the New American Standard Version. Here we go. Everyone together. 1 John 2, 15, 16, to 17. Here we go. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Number one in your outline, the meaning of worldliness, the meaning. I want to walk through the text with you very briefly, kind of expose the meaning here, and understand that the context here obviously always has to be understood. If you're going to understand God's Word, you need to see what it is in its context, and the purpose of the book of 1 John is very clear. It is to give you a biblical assurance of salvation. A biblical, not a cultural assurance of salvation, not a traditional assurance of salvation, but a biblical one. What does the Bible say must be true of you in order for you to know that you are saved? Well, the key verse in 1 John is 1 John 5, 13. You might want to look at it. It says this, The things that I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's Christians, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that, there's the purpose, you may know that you have eternal life. Now, interesting enough, John announced the purpose of his gospel. He told us that that was so that you might come to faith in Christ. And here he's talking to Christians that you may know and be certain that you're saved. So the entire book is actually written up of tests, tests to help you pass so that you would have biblical assurance of salvation. And there are five main tests in 1 John. There are a lot of minor ones, but five main ones. So write down D-O-L-E-S. D-O-L-E-S. You could put O-E-L-O-L-D-E-S. Or you could put, uh, I don't know, uh, let's see, loads, L-O-D-E-S. Those of you who are creative, acrostic kind of people. But L-O-D-E-S would be doctrine or doles, D-O-L-E-S, Doles would be doctrine, doctrine. You have to actually have a correct view of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Would you agree with that? You have to believe that he is God incarnate, that he's God in a bod. He's the one who substituted himself for our sins on the cross. He he died there. He was our substitutionary atonement. He rose from the dead and ascended back into the heaven, and he's the only way of salvation. You have to have right thinking about Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That would be doctrine, and that's found throughout 1 John. O would be obedience. Christians are obedient. They want to obey. They are not perfect in their obedience, but they definitely want to obey. Romans 6.17 tells us that we've given a heart 
that wants to follow Christ and wants to obey him. Even when we disobey him, we still want to. So there's an obedient heart there. L would be love, that you love God, that you love one another. And this test is found throughout 1 John in a variety of ways. And then E would be endurance. You will endure. You'll be faithful. Even when you're flat on your face in disobedience, you'll still, but I still want to follow Christ. I want to endure to the end. And then S would be spirit manifestations or the fruit of the spirit that when God is living in you, he's indwelling you, he's too powerful a being to not show through you, he's going to demonstrate himself in a variety of ways. L-O-D-E-S or D-O-L-E-S or O-L-D-E-S, whatever how you say it, a genuine believer will pass those main tests. They will. And John repeats these tests and other minor tests repeatedly in a variety of ways. He, he writes in Greek but he writes like a Hebrew. And a Hebrew would say, hey, let's look at the love test this way. And then he'll go back to the obedience test and then the doctrine test. He'll go right back to the love test again, but look at it from a different perspective. And that's what you have when you get to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. He's now giving you the love test, not referring it to if you love God, you'll obey God. If you know God, you, lo know, you, know, you love him. He's not doing that. He's saying this. The test of 1 John 2, 15, 16, and 17 is simply this, is if we love God, we will not love the world. If we love God, we will not love the world. These three verses have one main commandment and three motivations or three incentives. The main commandment in this passage is do not love the world. That's the main command. Don't love the world. The first incentive or motivation is if you love the world, you don't love God. That's a motivation. The second motivation is if you love the world, you'll perish with the world. And the third motivation is if you love God instead of the world, you will live with God forever. So take a look at your life now as you evaluate your life against this particular test, the test of if you love God, you will not love the world, and look at verse 15 with me. It says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. Here's the command. Don't love the world. And it's said, notice it, in contrast to loving God. So don't love the world, but love God. You see, interesting enough, he's already addressing the pseudo-Christian or the so-called Christian who loves the world. There's either two choices going on there. One is, is that they're really interested in the things of the world and not God, or they're just not interested in the things of God. Do any of those describe you? Do any of those describe you? Are you really interested in the things of the world, or are you not interested in the things of God? Now, as I'm looking at you here today, I can't tell. And the reason I can't tell is because you're not junior hires. You say, what do you mean by that? Because when you teach junior hires, they're polite enough to let you know when they're bored with spiritual things. They just start playing around and goofing off and all that kind of stuff. You're adults now. You don't do that. You hide it really well, right? So I don't know what's really going on internally in your heart and how interested you are in spiritual things or how disinterested you are, but understand this. To not love the world means God gets more attention, more affection, more interest, more conversation than the world ever gets in your life. Since the primary object for the true Christian is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. And now when John says, don't love the world, he's not talking about people here. When he says, don't love the world, he's not talking about the unsaved people of this world. He's commanded you not to love 
this fallen, wicked world system that basically leaves God out. He wants you not to love that system. It's, it's the same world that he's talking about in 1 John 5, 19, when he says, we know that we're of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we see when John says in 15, nor the things of the world, that's different than loving the world. Take a look at verse 15 again. He says, love the world, nor the things of the world. The things of the world are the particulars, the evidences, the actions of worldliness. So when someone says, and he writes here in verse 15, not to love the world, he's talking about attitude. Not to love the world is the attitude of worldliness, the internal desire of worldliness. He says, don't do that. And then when he says the things of the world, those are the actions of worldliness, the things we see. So there are so many so-called Christians who don't look worldly, but they keep all the external do's and don'ts. They look like polyperfect, but in their heart, they desire the things of the world, therefore they're worldly. They have the attitude of worldliness, and that's what he starts with. Don't even have the attitude that loves the world or the particulars that manifested out of that kind of heart. So John goes on to say, if anyone loves the world as a continual pattern of life, they are not saved. He says, for the love for the Father is not in them. The love for the Father is not in them. The Bible says it's utterly impossible to love God and at the same time to love the world. And James, in the book of James, affirms that same truth. What does he say in James 4? 4, he's so subtle when he says this. You adulteresses! Isn't that subtle, kind, gracious? You adulteresses! Do you not know that friendship with the world is what? hostility toward God. Wow. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the what? The enemy of God. If believers do not put the love of the world to death, the love of the world will put you to death. No true Christian can continually love the world and at the same time make a biblical claim to be a Christian as a pattern of life. The, not a, I'm not talking about a day or even a week. I'm talking about a pattern of life. If they make that claim, they cannot. Why? Because verse 16, take a look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, all of it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the lust of the flesh is all our emotional desires that are independent of God. The lust of the eyes are all the earthly longings for things and experiences and the boastful pride of life is the self-fulfillment and seeking recognition apart from God. That does not come from God. That's a part of that fallen world system. So this issue is somewhat black and white. There are only two kinds of people, those that love the world and those who love God. You say, wait a minute, is that really true? I mean, isn't it true that Christians can love God and love the world just a little bit? Can a Christian love both God and the world, don't we? Well, look at verse 17. And the world is what? It's passing away in its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. A whole way of life as we know it is going to end. The state of California is going to end. Some of you are going, yay. <laughs> the land of fruits, nuts, and flakes. Yay. Yay. Born and raised to California. John says the world is literally ending itself. It's almost as if you had a wind-up toy here and it's kind of running out of spring. 
or you had a little battery-powered toy and it's running out of juice. It says the world is going to end. It's running out of juice, and those who love it are going to run out of juice with it. They're going to run out of time with it. Verse 17 says, the one who is continually doing the will of God, though, participating in God's plan, doing what God wants us to be about on this planet, in this world, doing his will, doing what Jesus came to do, will live forever with God in eternity. The one who trusted God's perfect will as if it were unbreakable law. I'm going to do what he wants me to do and not what anybody else wants me to do, but he wants me to do, compared to the fading and fleeting desires of this world, that one will remain forever with God and not be condemned along with the world. Well, that is the, the meaning of this particular passage. We just walked through a very brief exegesis of this passage. So what is the message for us? We want to draw out now, out of the text, what the message is for us. And you're going to see five things very clearly. So point number two in your outline, the message of worldliness. The message of worldliness. You need to understand this and evaluate your life in comparison to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, because first in your outline, worldliness is a progression. Worldliness is a progression. Evaluate your life here in this text, because the Bible teaches us real Christians are in the world, but they are not what? Of the world. That's right. We interact with the world, but we're not to be submerged into the world. Submerged. Now, we all know that when a boat is on the water, that's a good thing. But when the water's in the boat, that's a bad thing, right? That's right. Jesus didn't pray that the Father would take Christians out of the world, but that, that he would take the world out of the Christian. It's a good thing for a Christian to be in the world. We're a witness. We're supposed to be putting Christ on display, proclaiming his message. It is not good for the world system to be in us. And the influence of the world in the life of the Christian usually begins with a slow leak, a slow leak, a subtle progression. You know, no Christian suddenly stumbles into immorality. There's always a lot of little sins of mind and heart that led up to that major compromise. And no Christian will be captivated by the world suddenly. But many little things and little sins lead up to it. So, Chris, how can I prevent it? How can I verify if I'm heading down the worldly path or pursuing Christ? Well, the Bible gives us some clues. Let me give you three of them. One is that don't become stained by the world. Don't become stained by the world. James chapter 1, verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion. In the sight of our God and Father, a couple things he lists, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself what? unstained by the world. Being stained usually goes like this. Things that used to bother you when you were a brand new baby Christian don't bother you anymore. I uh, used to be really worked up over little lies and grumbling or complaining or discontent or impatience or losing your temper or pessimism. Maybe fear or lust or trash TV or internet voyeurism or more. Hey, you think, well, I can't stop seeing anyway. Why even try I'm under God's grace. What's the big deal? You stop guarding against being stained by the world with little so-called little lies. Now, how many of you here have done some painting in your life? Can you see your hands painting? Okay, a few hands went up. Now, you probably misunderstood me. I, I, I didn't mean Rembrandt. I meant roll it on the walls painting. Anybody roll it on the wall? Oh, lots more people. Okay. 
you probably did it like I did it, which is basically you put the plastic down, you put the tape down, you get everything measured off, so you're going to make sure that the paint goes on the wall and not where, where it doesn't belong, especially on you, right? So you start rolling it on. If you've got a big job, you're cranking, man. You're just rolling, and you're rolling and rolling. Next thing you know, you find little flecks of paint all over you. Have you seen that? They're just everywhere. And all of a sudden, you keep doing it, and you do it, and the next thing you check down, there's actually big splotches of paint that have just gotten there, because you're working fast, you're going for it, you're doing this, and after a while, you start saying, what's the big deal? And you start painting yourself, right? <laughs> you know, and then you turn into one of those rabid Raider fans, you know, you're just rolling it on, you know, kind of thing. That's the process that we go through <laughs> with the world. All of a sudden, it just starts a little bit, and we just kind of, okay, we don't deal with it, and all of a sudden, we find more, and then we don't deal with it, and all of a sudden, we're just going for it. Interesting enough, being stained by the world is the same. Those so-called little sins in your life, when you stop dealing with them, you become stained. You start saying to yourself, I can't be helped, I'm under grace, it's too late now, so you become stained. Now, if this continues unconfessed, it can lead to something worse, and that would be two in your outline, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. And you know this verse, Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the world. Don't be shaped by the world. Don't be molded into what the world is saying, but be transformed. And we see that in the context here by God's word and by all of what Romans has talked about, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, many of you in this room, I'm certain you know what Play-Doh is. Not Plato, the philosopher, Play-Doh, the little kid clay stuff. Everybody with me? Okay, a few of you women who are working with the kids. All right, so understand, Play-Doh is amazing. You just scrunch it into any shape you want. Kids make all kinds of stuff. There's even a Play-Doh machine. You can stick it in there, you know, and stick it out, and it comes out in various shapes and all that kind of stuff. And basically what he's saying is don't let the world crunch you into its shape. Don't abide by the values of this planet. Don't be conformed to their thinking. Stuff like, your opinion matters. That's our world. That's not what the Scripture... There's really only one opinion we care about as Christians. Is that not? What God says. Uh, the world says, uh, you're good. The Bible says, no, you're not. And you need God's grace in your life for you to be right with God, Right? The word will tell you, you deserve this, and we know as Christians what we really deserve. The world will tell you all kinds of stuff. There's, there's more than two sexes, and God says, I made male and female. Are you with me? Understand, don't be conformed into the world's way of thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind according to the word of God. Once you get enough paint of the world's paint on you, you don't look any different than the world. You become conformed. Some of you are going to re remember this. Uh, do you remember the Susan B. Anthony coin dollar? Anybody remember that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they don't exist anymore. They were taken off the circulation. And the reason is that they were the same exact size as a quarter, except they had little rough edges or straight edges all the way around them. They didn't work. I was excited about having a dollar coin, you know, back to the old days, a big silver coin. Well, they made it the same size as the quarter, which made it indistinguishable. People hated it, and they got rid of it because it looked the same. Listen, that's the same with us. We can't be conformed to the world because we look the same, and we're useless as a result. We need to be different, attractive. The Bible says light and salt. You know what that means? Tasty 
and attractive. Tasty and attractive. There should something be appealing. When people come in here, they should see the way that you deal with one another would be going, wow, whatever that is, I want it. I was a college pastor. I did something by accident. I couldn't find enough singles to go on UCLA, USC, CSUN, and all the campuses that we were trying to reach. And so I settled for young couples. Isn't that, what a compromise. Young couples. What are young couples going to do on campus? Do you realize that more people came to Christ through those young couples than anything we did on that campus? You say, what happened? Kids from all over the world were coming to UCLA and USC and CSUN from horrible homes, horrible marriages, horrible home lives, and they looked at that young couple and they saw the way they loved each other, they saw the way they functioned in their roles, they saw the way they deferred to each other and cared for one another, and they said, whatever that is, that's what I want. The witness of being different and unique, what sets us apart. He says, you can't be like the world. You got to be different. Understand, if you move from being stained to living conformed, the Bible warns you, you may be condemned along with the rest of the world, and that's three in your outline. Don't be condemned with the world. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11.32 says this very clearly. We are disciplined or spanked by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. God spanks us so we won't be condemned. And, you know, he's keeping us on track. Now, Hebrews 12 tells us that God loves those he spanks, and he only spanks his own children. He disciplines his own. In fact, he says, if you are not disciplined by God then you're not his child. And therefore, it's very important that God would discipline us, correct us, keep us on the right path so that we're not condemned along with the world. This world is passing away in judgment, and it will take all those who love it with it, all of them. If you remain conformed to the world as a lifestyle, then there is a good chance that you're on your way to eternal death and hell with those of the fallen world. Now, it's not that you're earning your way, but it's that God makes you different, and you won't look like the world as an ongoing lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. So in other words, according to 1 John 2.15, if you're continually loving the world, then you are lost and will be judged with those of the fallen world. Remember Lot? Lot looked at Sodom, then he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then he lived in Sodom, and he was almost condemned with Sodom. Remember Psalm 1? It says that you walk with the wicked, and that you stand, and then you sit. There's a progression here that he's talking about. And if you continue to look like the world, then chances are you are of the world, because worldliness is first a progression. Secondly, in your outline, worldliness is forsaking a person. A person. Did you notice in verses 15 through 17 that John compares a relationship with a personal God with an impersonal system. Now, I want you to see this because you've got to understand this is coming right out of the text. He's comparing an impersonal world system, an evil system, with a personal relationship with God. And that's why worldliness is forsaking a person. He says in verse 15, the love of the Father, comparing that to the world system. And then verse 16, is not from the Father. Again, comparing it to a fallen world system. And verse 17, the will of God. The love of the Father is not from the Father. The will of God to love the world is to do two things. It's to love an impersonal system that leaves God out. Or 
It is to turn your back on a personal God, to not love the Lord Jesus Christ as your first love. To love the world is to ignore God. You know, you say hi on Sunday, and then you ignore him the rest of the week. You don't have to get an edgy tattoo or gamble your whole life savings away at Vegas in order to be worldly, just ignore God. When your relationship turns to religion, you become worldly. When your worship is empty and has empty-heartedness, you become worldly. Listen, a worldly heart is one that has allowed something, some desire, or some person to compete for God's rightful place as first love in your heart. Let me say that again. Get this down. A worldly heart is one that has allowed something, some desire, or some person to compete for God's rightful place as first love in your heart. We're to be like the psalmist who says in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth, nothing in this world. I just desire him. A heart free from worldliness is one that desires nothing but God, possesses nothing but God, and pursues nothing but God. I mean, our life is to be Christ, is it not? To live is what? Christ, and to die is gain. That's our life, to live is Christ. So you desire nothing but Christ, and nothing but, uh, possess nothing but God, and pursue nothing but Christ. Recently, you're probably aware, last week, we actually had to cancel our children's ministry. We meet outside, and we meet in a gym, and we're a growing church in the region there of Marietta, Temecula, etc. Right now, we're at Marietta Valley High School, and we're in the gym, and then when they kick us out of the gym, we go back out to the football stadium. But we're building a piece of property, and we're going to be moving there pretty quick, and we're pretty excited. So it's happening. But interesting enough, I share that context for you because last week, here we were struggling. We had to cancel children's because it was smoky, etc., and we could meet inside, and we got a phone call from one of our church members. His name is Jason, and his house was being threatened by the fire, and he had to leave. And the police came up and gave him a whoop, whoop. You know, he had to come out and meet the police. The police says, you got to go. So he packs his family up in the car, all right? He turns back and looks at his house and all his possessions, and he says this from the depths of his heart. There's nothing I want here. Everything I want is here in the car. There's nothing I want here. Now, that's the right heart. Would you agree? And his son was incredible. He has a 12-year-old son, and his 12-year-old son looked up at his dad, and he said, Pastor Mueller's right, Dad. It's all going to burn. It's <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Someone's going to ask, well, wait a minute. Can't I desire a job? Can't I desire a spouse? Can't I desire a healthy body? What's the answer to that? The answer is No. No, you can't, unless it involves a desire for Christ. See, what do you mean? Why do you have a job? You have a job so you can obey Christ, so you can fulfill your role, you can fill out your obligations, and you can serve Christ and honor Christ at that job. Why do you want a spouse? You have a spouse primarily for one reason, that you can serve Christ better with that person than you can as a single, that you somehow together are going to be more influential and more effective for God's kingdom than you would as a single. In other words, do you have an eye for Christ and everything you desire? Isn't that exactly what the Bible teaches us? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. 
whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's putting him on display. You shouldn't even lift a glass of water drinking to your lips unless it somehow glorifies God. Understand, St. Augustine captured the heart of this truth when he prayed to the Father, saying, He loves Christ too little, who loves anything together with Christ, which he loves not for Christ's sake. That's a little hard to understand, so let me say it again. He loves Christ too little, who loves anything together with Christ, which he loves not for Christ's sake. Do you have an eye for Christ in everything you do? We often think of worldliness as overt gross sin. It's merely ignoring God. Merely ignoring God. Therefore, the first step to overcoming worldliness is to restore your relationship with the Lord through His Word, by His Spirit, and in prayer. When you become His friend, you will no longer be the world's friend. If Christ is not your best friend, now get it, your first love, then someone else or something else will be. Listen, we were made to have a first love. And if it is not Christ, then something else or someone else will be there. Could be your kids, could be your spouse, could be your home, it could be some job, it could be something. But that's when we become worldly. Imagine your fiancé at lunch today turns to you and says, you know, after hearing that sermon, you know, this marriage stuff's for the birds, we should just go back to being friends. Would that be devastating to you? Yet it's no different when a Christian turns their back on their first love to love something or someone else. When you ignore God, you're treating Him no different than a spouse who ignores their marriage partner. Which brings me to ask you this kind of offhanded question. If the Lord were your spouse, how strong would your marriage be? Thirdly, Worldliness is a heart passion. Worldliness is a heart passion. When the fundamentalist preacher has everybody burn their bad CDs and burn their cigarettes and burn their immoral clothing, then everybody feels less worldly because they dealt with it externally. Some think that if you never go to a movie and you never use the internet, you are less worldly. Some feel if you wear certain kind of clothes and you get certain kind of haircuts, then you'll be less worldly. Others believe that if you only drive used cars, never a Tesla, never borrowed money, then you would all be less worldly. That is not what John is saying in this text. Don't take my word for it. Look at his words. All those things, by the way, are worthy of discussion and might be evidence of a believer who's, you know, loving the world. It might be that way, but they may indicate a heart given over to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, but that's really not the key. You don't have to do those things to be worldly. A clean-cut man in a business suit can be more worldly than an unshaven dude on a Harley. See, how can that be? They may not do any of the particulars, the outward external deeds that indicate worldliness and yet still be worldly if they have desires, desires, emotions towards the world. That's the key. You say, where do you get that? I'm so glad you asked. Look at the word lust in verse 16. The word lust in verse 16 means strong desire. 
Most often in the New Testament, it is used to articulate something that would be bad or evil, a desire for something wrong. But it is also used in the New Testament to desire something good. Like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, if any man desires the office of an elder, that's the same word, epithemia, desiring, a strong desire to fill out that office. Well, in the same way here, he would say, look, this is a strong desire. It's what you long for in your heart that makes you a lover of the world. It's what you long for, not what you do. That's only the result. Do you get that? Let me say it again. It's what you long for in your heart that makes you a lover of the world, not what you do. That's only the result of your heart. The Apostle John says, no one may see it, but you may be filled with love for the world. Filled with it. What do you mean? Well, you crave pleasure. You fantasize over sin. You lust over possessions. You become envious, and it's all in your heart. And that makes you worldly before God. You may not look worldly, but in your heart, you're worldly. Understand, this is a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle for singles. It's a struggle for marrieds. I remember uh, being a college pastor, being made aware of a gal who signed all of her notes, Sinbad, S-I-N-B-A-D. We're like, why are you signing your notes, Sinbad? Well, she says, it's an acrostic. I go, what does it mean? Single income, no boyfriend, and desperate. <laughs> like, wow. Uh, you know, we need to talk to you about, you know, where you're at with the Lord here. And so she began to actually search the scriptures and began to become uh, someone who actually understood who the Lord was, and I think she got saved and all this process. Interesting enough, she still signed her notes, Sinbad. I'm like, what are you doing? Single income, no boyfriend, and dangerous for Christ. Understand, it's a heart issue that's being dealt with there. So much of worldliness is blamed on externals, Yet, sometimes externals are no indicator at all of what's going on in your heart. Someone may look really worldly and have a passionate heart for Christ alone. The meanest guy in my high school, the guy that had guns and knives in his locker, the guy that never bathed and people parted like the Red Sea when he walked down. I met him. He still looked the same, but he wasn't the same. I met him a year later after high school at Knott's Berry Farm at a Christian concert. I go, Ray, what are you doing here? He goes, I got saved. He looked disgusting. <laughs> but he was not the same guy. And his heart was totally different. Understand, the externals are not the issue. It's really worldliness stems from a heart that desires anything but the Lord first in all things. Look what he says in verse 16 again. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The first two descriptions, lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes, describe desires for what you don't have. You want them and you lust after them or your eyes seek them. The third one, the pride of life, describes pride in what you do have. So we're driven that way in, in basically a passion for pleasure and possessions and a pride in possessions, and that's why advertising works on us. We're driven that way. And here, the passion for pleasure is described two ways. There's the physical and the aesthetic, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. 
The lust of the flesh is bodily pleasures, the physical, and the lust of the eyes is the aesthetic, the intellectual pleasures. John is not naive. He knows that it's not just physical, but it's also aesthetic. He, he knows that worldliness is not limited to saying everybody that shops at Nordstrom's is worldly, right? Some of you shop at Nordstrom's. You're not worldly. Uh, you know, some people only shop Italian like my family, right? Targetto. You know, that's what we do. All right. But there's the lust of the gutter, and there's the lust of the gourmet. Uh, there's the lust of the hard rock, and there's the lust of the classical. The book of 1 John ends with a ringing command. It says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And those idols could be crude idols, or they could be cultured, refined idols, but they're still idols. Anything of this world and in this world that's not God can rob your heart of love for God, and because worldliness is an inner heart passion. Inner heart passion. Things are not the issue. Possessions are not the issue. It's your desire and your priority that are. We live on a planet that loves things and uses people, and we need to be a people who love people and use things. So ask yourself, where are you? I can't tell where you are. But the Lord can help you through the Spirit of God to determine where's your wantometer. What do you want internally more than anything? When it really sings out, where is that at? Is it with the Lord or is it with other things? Where's your desire dial set? Do you desire the things of the Lord or the things of this world? Do you desire the people of God or the people of this world? Do you desire... Uh, a fellowship with God or fellowship with others? Do you desire God's word or do you desire somebody else's word? What's more important? Because worldliness is desire, a passion. And if your desire heads towards God, that's a good spiritual sign. If your desires head towards the world, that's a bad spiritual sign. Number four, fourthly, worldliness is a wrong perspective, a wrong perspective. Again, we're drawing this out of the text, and he says in verse 17, the world is passing away. Do you notice that? Passing away, and also it's less, but the one who does the will of God, what is he? He abides, how long? Forever, forever. So he's talking about the world passing away, but he who abides in God and in Christ and in the Word abides forever. Notice the words, passing away, abides forever. A person does not love the world who, who doesn't love the world has a, an eternal perspective. He's making that contrast in this text. A Christian not loving and living for the world has heaven on their mind or her mind. Is that true of you? For most of us, the problem with an eternal perspective is that it's really far removed from our daily lives. Uh, it's detached from the way we really live life. Uh, what difference really does eternity make to most Christians? I mean, I got to get on with living. There's too much to worry about today. I mean, why worry about the future? Well, we, got, we think to ourselves, I've got my, my schoolwork and I got my job and uh, I've got my boyfriend, my girlfriend, uh, my, my team, my friends. Uh, I've got my spouse. I got my job. I got my, all these kids. I got this, you know, all these responsibilities. I got my commitments. I got to live life now and not worry about eternity. But the Apostle John is saying here, if we don't allow eternity to rip through every aspect of our lives, we will become worldly. We start to live for, you know, feeling good. Or we start to live for 
our possessions or our health. Uh, we start to live for being liked or being successful or being comfortable or having it convenient. And we become worldly when every day is not impacted by eternity. We become worldly when every day is not impacted by eternity. You should wake up every day saying, maybe today, maybe today, I'll be in eternity. Understand, we're kind of crafty about it, too. We think to ourselves, man, if I do these things now, God will bless me now. We kind of invest into things so we get immediate, you know, feedback. We're looking for immediate payback and, and not eternity, but God says we're to sow now to reap in when? Eternity, in heaven. John Calvin, the great reformer, said it this way, the mind of a Christian ought not to be filled with thoughts of earthly things or find satisfaction in those earthly things, for we ought to be living as if we might have to leave this world at any moment. Right? That's what it means to live heavenly and not worldly or earthly. Remember what Jesus said after the rich young ruler walked away from salvation because he was unwilling to give up his riches? Remember what he said? The disciples are wondering, man, if this guy won't leave anything for Christ, and we, the disciples, have left, left everything for Christ, what are we going to get? And Jesus' answer is absolutely shocking. He says in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times more and shall inherit the eternal life. He's, he's saying, not only are you going to be rewarded, you're going to get salvation, eternal life, or you're going to receive so much more than that. Eternal life's enough for me, but not to the Lord. We're to sow now to reap in eternity later. The next time you try to figure out your net worth, and I know for some of you collegians, that's really difficult, you know, because after the latte you just bought, you're worth $3.73. You know, you don't have a lot. There's time, though you have energy, you have some finances and some possessions. Remember that all of those, whether you have a lot or you have a little, are only for two purposes. Purpose number one is that they're a tool, a tool to serve Christ, to honor Christ. He owns it all anyway, so it's to be a tool for use in his purposes in his kingdom. doesn't mean you don't live. doesn't mean you don't own a house. doesn't mean you don't have a car. It just means that you understand that these finances don't really belong to you. They're his. And so, therefore, we want to use them for his glory. The second thing is they're a test. They're not just a tool. They're a test of your true spiritual life. Where your treasure is, there your what? heart is also. You want to know where your heart's at? Just look at your finances. None of your money, none of your possessions, according to the Bible, not me, are yours. They're not yours. All of it belongs to God. Can I hear an amen to that? Materialistic culture people, you really got to get zealous about that. So say amen to that. Amen. amen. Understand, our, you are merely a steward, and you understand what a steward is. A steward is using all I have for the owner's purposes. I don't own it. He does. So I use it for him. It's not accumulating. It's not hoarding. It's using things for the king. Stewardship isn't keeping things clean and unscratched. It's using your resources for the master. 
Nobody buys stock in a company they know is going to go bankrupt. Nobody builds a little shack on the Titanic knowing it's going to sink. And, and no reasonable person stores their valuables where they can get ruined or stolen, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in. The world is passing away. It's passing away. It's going to burn. So real Christians work at maintaining an eternal perspective. And only two things are actually eternal that we deal with, people and God's Word. So therefore, Christians spend a lot of their energies investing God's Word, God's message, God's truth into people because those are the eternal things. So your things are for eternity. Otherwise, you will be worldly. So worldliness is a progression. It starts as a slow leak and begins to move. It's forsaking a person. In other words, you're actually dissing Christ and, and you're getting too focused on this planet. It's a passion. It's an internal desire. You either desire the things of God or the things of the world. It's perspective. You're living for eternity and you're not living for the temporariness of this world. And fifthly, in your outline, worldliness is neglecting your purpose. It's neglecting your purpose. Look again at verse 17. It says, and the world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides, how long? Forever. Listen, that phrase, does the will of God, he's not talking about God's will for your personal life today. He's talking about God's sovereign will for this planet. God has a message and a, and a will and a desire for his children on this planet. And basically, understand, if you love God, you will love what he wills. You will love what he wants. It's empty talk to say that you love God and not love what he loves. And what does he love? He loves God's will. Look what he says. John, Jesus says this in John 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his what? His work. John 17, as he prays right before he's about to be crucified, he says, as thou didst send me into the world, now I send what? Them into the world. You are left in this world for God's purpose. And what is that? Christian, God's purpose is to make Christ known. When we say do all to the glory of God, you're saying I'm going to make him known. I'm going to put his character on display at my work, at my job, at, at, at my home, in my school, in my neighborhood. And everywhere I am, I want to put Christ on display. My desire is to share the gospel with the ain'ts and to build up the saints. Understand, for people to come to Christ and become like Christ, we are here to be disciples who obey and follow Christ and show something unique. When people come to this church, they should see the way that you deal with one another in such a way that they'd say, whatever that is, I want a part of it. It should be attractive to them because we're putting him onto display and even how we treat one another. It's doing the one thing in this world that you can't do in heaven. What can you do on this world that you cannot do in heaven? Share Christ, the gospel. Once you leave this planet, that is over. Your only opportunity to do that is now. You say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can't have babies in heaven. I'm like, why do you have kids, Christian? Why do you have kids? So that they would come to Christ, right? Same mission. You want to put Christ on display in the opportunity that you have while you're here that is the will of God for this planet. Understand, when you're saying this about Christ, you're talking about who Christ is, right? And you all know who Christ is, right? 
he's not just a religious leader. You understand the difference between Christianity and every other faith, correct? Every other faith on this planet is telling you, work your way to heaven. Just do enough good things, be religious enough, light enough candles, and somehow you're going to make it to heaven. Christianity is the only faith that says you'll never make it on your own. You'll never. You, there's no way possible you can get to heaven on your own. No matter how good you are, no matter how nice you are, Grandma Nice, you can't make it. You can't. The only way is that God would rescue you. And he did so by sending his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross as our substitute, to take the punishment that we deserve there, to bear all of God's wrath for your sin against himself, to die, pay the wages of sin, to resurrect from the dead, to ascend into heaven. And now, if your sin falls on Christ on the cross, his righteousness can cover you, his perfect righteousness, which allows you to then stand in God's presence forever. The only way you'll ever be in heaven is to be perfect, and the only way you'll ever be perfect is to be covered with the righteousness of Christ, Amen. not yours. You say, what else happens? Well, you're not just covered with his righteousness, but he changes you internally. The moment you're saved, you're born again. Born again means regeneration, which means you have a new heart, and that new heart wants to please Christ even when you fail to. And that's the message we're trying to tell people, that the only way to be right with God, and it's a message you share, and it's also a message, according to Philippians chapter 1, worthy of the gospel, that you live. You demonstrate that. Understand, Christianity is filling out your purpose on this earth and by proclaiming Christ. And if that's not a part of why you're here, you're going to become worldly. 1 John 2.17 says, you will become worldly. The apostle John has just tested you and he exposed your heart. Are you progressing towards holiness or conformity? Are you ignoring the person of God or are you pursuing him? Is the passion of your heart towards God or towards the world, the desires of your heart? Do you live with a heavenly perspective or do you live with a worldly one? Are you more in love with going to heaven or are you really satisfied here on earth? And are you fulfilling God's purpose by living out his will or are you living out your own will? Listen, non-Christian, if you don't know Christ here today, this world right now will be the only heaven you will ever know. Christian, if you're truly his child, this world will be the only hell you will ever know. Let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray. With your heads down and your eyes closed, just for a moment, allow me to guide you into some thinking, and then I'll pray and close our time. But understand, there are two kinds of people here, and only two, those who don't know Christ and those who know Christ. If you don't know Christ, even though you walked an aisle, even though you prayed a prayer once, if there's no evidence of Christ in you or through you, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. It is indicative of a Christian, even in their failures, even in their struggling and stumbling and failures and sin, they still want to follow Christ. So you need to cry out, Lord, open my heart, open my eyes. Take out that heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh so that I might love you with my whole life and turn from my sin and repentance and depend on you in faith and exchange all that I am for all that you are and be born again. Don't mess with your eternity. 
don't be a child of this world. Be a child of heaven, a child of Christ. For the rest of you who do know Christ, maybe today was a reminder of what it means to truly pursue him and to love him with all your heart. Maybe it's been that he slipped off of first love and he needs to be restored as your first love. Through God's word, through God's people, through prayer, that same spirit who indwells you wants to fire you up to make you like Christ. Let him do his work and cooperate with him in an act of obedience to make this your church home, to get plugged in here, to get discipled here, to grow here, to sit under the incredible word that is taught here and be a people who truly love Jesus with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself by working in the lives of those who don't know you and that you would encourage and challenge and bless those of us who do so that we would be more like you and less like this world, less enamored with this planet and more in love with what life is going to be, eternal life forever in heaven. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. And all of God's people said, amen. 